Thank you for coming along to ACME, just in case you didn't know where we were. We had the, uh, <laughs> the reminder videos there. Um, to hear Wendy Hughes, who's also going to be um, uh, presenting the story of her life in film, along with... <laughs> oh, that'll be short. Jill Robb to her the left. The <laughs> That's right. No one's filming this, are they? Um, and Lex Marinos, who's um, on the other side of Wendy over there. Um, Jill Robb. Jill Robb is the producer for Careful He Might Hear You. Jill Robb? Robb. Robb. <laughs> That's all right. And Lex Marinos directed An Indecent Obsession and Boundaries of the Heart. Correct. Which, yes. um, my name's Deb Verhoeven. I won't be doing a lot of talking, but I am going to do a little bit of talking at the start. I work at RMIT University and I'm the Deputy Chair of the National Film and Sound Archive, but mostly I'm here because I'm a, a major Wendy Hughes fan. Um, I also happen to like Star Trek, so, you know, I've had... <laughs> I've had a moment in my life. Um, it does, doesn't it? That's probably all I need to say. But I want to say a little bit about Wendy. Um, Wendy's career as, as an actor and uh, a screenwriter and producer, amongst other things, spans... You, you did write Well, no, I, I put the odd suggestion. Yes. But, but managed to get a very big credit. So no, I wouldn't <laughs> say writer, really, but did manage to co-produce a couple of little films, yeah. Excellent. But we'll, we'll slash up, we'll um, delete writer. Okay. And you EP'd and produced as well. Did I? Um, According to your profile in the <laughs> oh Internet dear. Movie Database. Oh, okay. Well, which maybe. says Did I? that you, <laughs> have producer credits for Luigi's Ladies. Yes, yes. EP, and associate producer credits that's for Boundaries. That's it for Boundaries. That's it. Yes, that's perfect. Okay. Just That'll do. You know, as an academic, I like to make sure my references <laughs> are all very accurate. Um, Wendy's career has spanned really the history of the renaissance of the Australian film industry since the early 70s, um, and she's worked in a range of formats, uh, including documentary, art cinema, commercial cinema, melodramas, period films, um, crime series, Star Trek, um, <laughs> any number of um, um, roles ranging from playing academics to aristocrats to women who are unhappy in their marriages women who are unhappy in their relationships, uh, unhappy women. Women who are just unhappy. Yes. There's <laughs> a lot of unhappiness in your roles, I noticed. No. No drama without unhappiness, I guess. A doomed insurance investigator, um, Jean-Luc Picard's only love interest in six series of Star Trek. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, well, there was the, you know, the, the love that dare not speak its name with his co-stars in the oh. ship, but that was never, never allowed to play out. No, I think I consummated it mm. with, with John Luke. Yes, mm. definitely. And then I saved a planet. <laughs> As one does. That was much better than, you know, having an affair with John Luke, I think. You've spent quite a lot of time in World War Two. I did, didn't I, with Lex. Lex and I were stuck in World War II, weren't we? We were. In New we Guinea. Mm. Uh, you, you played an art teacher who liked to ride trains. That's correct, uh, yes. Oh, was a prostitute. Well, That's mm. right. Prostitute on weekends, part-time prostitute, yes. And uh, you knew Gary Sweet when he had hair. Exactly, and no. lots of it. Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> a yes. lot, And you may, in fact, see a little snippet of that in one of the trailers a little bit later. Oh, okay, good. Um, good. People will be shocked and surprised to discover that Gary Sweet did, in fact, once have hair. Mm, and did. quite a lot of it. Um, you played a, a psychiatric nurse, a medical examiner. You've done quite a lot of the medical profession. But, yes. A state yes, yes. coroner. 
Exactly. Oh, God. For several seasons. <laughs> yes, that was, yeah, two seasons, I think. You've had that was interesting. Many roles as a mother, including being mother of a, a future first lady in, oh, in A Woman Called Jackie. A Woman Called Jackie, yes, mm. I played Janet Ockham-Kloss. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that took a lot of training to learn that name. I'm, I'm sure there was a dialogue <laughs> coach for that. The American accent, the Boston accent was difficult. Well, I didn't master it, actually. I just did that Atlantic, transatlantic. Mid-Atlantic. Mid- mm. Mid-Atlantic, thank you, accent. Mm. And on stage you played Mrs. Robinson. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, many, many, many roles, many parts, many personas... And and many, as I said, different types, I guess, of, of performances in terms of you know documentary fiction features and so on. So yeah. it's been a, a very very full CV. It has, hasn't it? When, when you put it like that, looks <laughs> yes. <laughs> but my, my, most people may not realise that you grew up in Melbourne. That's right, in Alfington, Como Street, Alfington. Um, my house, I was, um, I spent all my formative years there till I was about eighteen. And my house is no longer there. It was pulled down and made into um, a nursing home, I think, quite a few years ago. But um, very fond memories of Alfington. Okay. And then after living in Melbourne and being, I think, prompted by uh, um, a voice coach, you thought you might try your hand at acting. Is that right? Um, yeah, I did, I'd, I'd done some um, amateur theatrics. I played Juliet when I was about... 15 for Monash University and I had a um, I suppose a, yeah, a, an acting coach who said why don't you audition for NIDA which I did and um, I went off to NIDA when I was um, 18 yeah, wow. on the spirit of progress in the second class um, <laughs> yes I couldn't wait I was in the second <laughs> class carriages of the spirit of progress you know 12 hours sitting up all the way to Sydney, and um, you know, I just thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I was, couldn't wait to get on that train. <laughs> Who was in your class at night? Or was there anyone that you ended up working with later? And- yeah, John Hargraves. Uh huh. And I worked with Lex as um, what were, we were lepers in Tyrone. I could, I could pick up the story yes, a little please, bit here. Um, <laughs> so it is like forty years ago that Wendy and I met, um, which seems. Bizarre when you, when I think about it, uh, because it, it doesn't feel like whatever forty years is meant to feel like. It doesn't uh, feel like that. But I, I can remember fairly vividly. I was at the School of Drama at the University of New South Wales, and the uh, the NIDA campus was already was NIDA was also on the university campus in those days. So we're only a couple of hundred yards away from one another. And in those days, there was probably a little bit more. Uh, collaboration between students and certainly the, the teachers at NIDA and the teachers at the School of Drama are often uh, swapped over. So, so we had a fair bit to do with one another and, and they were opening a big new uh, complex at the university, a big new lecture theatre, uh, but it was meant to be an all-purpose theatre, uh, the John Clancy Auditorium, and they had brought out a very illustrious English director, Sir Tyrone Guthrie, to do the initial production there, which was to be uh, Oedipus the King. And so for all of the the uh, those of you who remember the story, the city of Thebes is under uh, you know scourge because of some plague, uh, plague and and you know so all of the Thebians are plague riddled and lepers and all that, and of course they used all the students for that. So students from the School of Drama and students from NIDA, we were the lepers, and uh, they had some very. Um, Gee, you wouldn't be able to buy that leper cast now, I tell you. It would cost you a lot of money, uh, notwithstanding those who are no longer with us, sadly, like like Johnny Hargraves. But uh, Wendy's year there was also Pamela Stevenson, who's now Mrs Billy Connolly, 
people may remember her. Um, Iva Kantz was in that year, Gregor Taylor. Yeah. What um, are the girls? Who are, who else apart from uh, you and Pam? Candy, Candy Raymond. Candy Raymond. Um, Robin Gurney. They haven't... Yeah. Um, of Vivian Garrett. Yeah, Viv Garrett, yeah. who still does some work. So it was, it was one of those years that was, uh, that was a fairly uh, noteworthy year and, um, and certainly without preempting anything that I would want to say later on in introducing Indecent Obsession. And, and, I mean, this is, this is going to be awkward anyway with Wendy sitting beside me, so it's going to feel like it's, it's <laughs> phony. But, I mean, certainly uh, it was clear in those days that he was was an outstanding talent, in, in the same way that, that Johnny Hargraves from that year, you could look at John and you say, well, there's unquestionably a great, you know, our future leading man. And it was equally as true to, to see, I mean, it was clear that Wendy was different, that she, she had qualities that, that you don't often see, you know, which is not a lack of respect for any of the other students who went through. But it was, it was clear in the same way that a few years later when Mel Gibson and Judy Davis were in the same year, it was equally clear that there were a couple of outstanding talents there. And it's been that, that way all, all along. But, I mean, certainly at that time, uh, I, I think everybody with, with half a brain was, was, anxious, was, was watching to see what Wendy was going to do after after NIDA, and I think from memory the first thing was a, uh, a commercial play, wasn't it? Did you do, was uh, that Butterflies Harry, are Free? Yeah, Harry and Miller, yeah. um, Butterflies are Free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we must also add that I did, didn't I get fired in that Tyrone? I got you fired You did, you were reprimanded, you were reprimanded for chewing gum, <laughs> as I recall. <laughs> and it was, girl, oh, get we up were, here. It was, was like, oh, yes, me, girl. Oh, it was all very, very uncomfortable. Um, if only he knew. Uh, who he was talking to. Um, and it certainly didn't stop you from chewing gum, as no, I recall. No, I made no. sure I did it twice as much after that. <laughs> but, I, but anyway, uh, sorry, Deb, to interrupt there, but I mean, at that point, so, I, so what I'm saying is from 40 years ago, I think it was pretty clear to all of us that, that he was an exceptional talent. And uh, 40 years later, that's proven to be the case. And so, so I mean, I think it was quite, quite interesting to see that happening there because it, it did coincide with the with the renaissance of the film industry and you know at that stage and I, and I and I remember sadly one of the films you won't be seeing in this uh, retrospective on Wendy is Sidecar Races. Mm, I agree. It's an excellent movie, um, it, but it was one of those movies that at that time was being made in Australia with American money, very very B grade, very B grade American stars and and local talent and and once again it, it was that sort of movie but even from that movie it was clear that Wendy and the other, and one of the other Australians in it the late John Clayton it oh, was clear yes, that yeah. here were a couple of very strong screen presences and and Wendy in particular you know has gone on to see that and you see all of those all of those movies and that huge CV that Deb's uh, scouring there and 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 I I would um I would be happy to uh, to say that speaking on behalf of all the directors that Wendy's worked with, is that the movies have been better because she's been in them Aww. than if she hadn't been in them. Thank you. <laughs> now, Sidecar Races was made in 75, but before that you were in Peterson. Mm. Yes. Which is perhaps your, your big early break in, in That was my film. first film ever. 
Yep. Got your gear off too. Oh, endlessly. <laughs> but, uh, as, as did I many said, many people in that movie, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, remember they, they were all doing it under under a, under a tarpaulin and in the water and in the, under a desk and. It was that it was that sort of era too, where not only were Australians getting their gear off, every you know it was you had Glenda Jackson and um, Helen, I also Helen think Mirren. That film was also Tim Burstall's um, fantasy, personal. Fantasy. Yes, well, also David Williamson's too, I suppose, because <laughs> he wrote it. <laughs> but I, I, when I saw Peterson, I did go, oh, I don't think. I think I've got a lot to learn. I remember going, mm, I was 22 playing a, a 35-year-old, which didn't help. And sometimes I just thought, oh, that idiot doesn't know what she's talking about. It did feel to me like um, I didn't quite get there. But um, that's okay. Um, you know, you get to practice as you, as you go along. And sometimes I cringe at Peterson, I must say. Does anybody remember <laughs> Peterson in the audience? Oh, we got two or three, mainly male, ah. mainly blokes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they're turning the mics up because we're not talking closely enough into them. Ah, right. We yes. have, a, hear us? We have a, trailer, a trailer of Peterson to show, um, oh, which does give a little bit of the flavour of the film. Um, Is so it we might have... run through, the, run through the, um, the water with Jack, with the bottom wobbling. There is bottom wobbling going oh, on. Wobbling. Excellent. <laughs> so we might... <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> let's roll the trailer for Peterson, please. study of a vanishing breed in today's society. Thank God. I've been up with this sort of deal by every little pushy businessman in the city. Shut it up your ass. 70s, 80s, 90s. That's 30 years old, huh? 35. Peterson mends fuses for a living. But he goes to university. Peterson is married, but you wouldn't notice. <laughs> Peterson never says no to a woman or a fight. I just didn't think. Oh, I thought I was the first man to ever make you really feel something. Or is that just a sound of like bullshit you hand out to everybody? Yeah. I bet your children are very bright. Actually, Debbie's quite bright. She started that's, reading that's words tricky. already. She must have got it from her father because I'm stupid. <laughs> Does she enjoy making love to Susie? Oh, that was me. How much more oh, enjoyable God. I? I just have sex with him on the office floor, like a whore. 
It surprised you when I passed all my subjects last year. Perhaps one of the reasons might be that you're no Einstein yourself. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Peterson loves life. <laughs> but he gives it a hell of a beating. <laughs> How would you like to get your head locked Jack Thompson is Peterson. Oh, thank God. No. <laughs> I want to see it now. That was a long trailer, wasn't it? Gosh. That's longer than the movie. <laughs> I know some George Mallaby in there. You also did some work on Homicide, is that right? Some TV ups? Yeah, when I was very, very young. And with, yeah, I think George Mallaby playing guitar and singing or something to me. That would have been, oh, late 60s, I think. Yeah. You've, worked, you've sort of moved between TV and, and film. Do you have a preference for one or the other? or Not really. Um, I find theatre a lot uh, more tiring, I think, because you've got to well, wait until night time to do it. Normally it's like, oh, I'm ready to have a drink and go to bed, really. So um, you've got to concentrate more, um, really, really got to be on the ball. You do with film as well, but at least if you stuff up with the odd take, you can you know, do another one, whereas with theatre... You really have to try and get it right, right and on the night yeah. every time. So, no, I love both mediums, but I do love film and television. I think because you can just be realer to a certain extent. It can be, um, mm. uh, yeah, more in the moment or more um, uh, true because you're not having to project to the back of the you know house and all of that. So, do you go along and watch your films after they're finished? A lot of actors don't like to. No, no, no. I don't go and watch them. Uh, normally, if you're going to a premiere or something, you've, you've got to actually see them. <laughs> um, but I find as I get older, I'd, you know, I'd rather not go that much, really. <laughs> Just like, oh, that close-up's very close. <laughs> You'll find quite a few actors who you get to come along to the premieres go, oh, all right, well, I have to, yes, you do, and you have to be nice to the press, and you have to look beautiful. And I'm not naming any particular names, but up people make the boring speeches like this and then the, the actors and they're all sitting there and the lights go down. And then if you look very carefully, you'll see people creeping. <laughs> creeping away. To the back bar and then <laughs> back again. Because usually by this time, although she's saying she doesn't see it, by the time she's done some post-sinking and she's watched rushes quite often and might mm. have been called in... Um, to see what she feels about a fine cut. She's probably seen it half a dozen times. That's yeah. not that she's not interested. It's just you actually get a... You actually don't see it. As, as a producer, of course, you've seen it 97 times, so you really don't see it. But um, I have great sympathy with actors who are hauled out for premieres in each... Remember when we will get to Careful, but we went all the way around Australia doing opening yeah. nights for Careful and interview after interview... And they've got to say the same thing over and over again, which is difficult. Yeah, and to make it sound still spontaneous and all of that. I mean, yeah. you do, but sometimes you just do not want to sit through um, the film again. 
quite frankly. But mm. I watch it and I know when I've had enough and that's it. Yeah. Mm. I imagine with a film like Peterson, I mean, sitting through that, given the uh, rawness, as they described it. And, well, I haven't um, seen that since it was done and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do remember thinking, oh, I wasn't very good in it. Too. I went, oh, I didn't like my voice. I didn't like the way it... I just felt, felt I was inappropriate, really. And... Um, I remember having quite a nice time doing it, but not realising what I'd actually delivered. Mm. Probably thousands of people were inspired to go to university having seen that movie. And I hope so, <laughs> yes. I mean, it was a fantastic cast, and we all had a wonderful time, and Tim's mad, and, you know, it was all very early days. Everyone was just so enthusiastic, and you couldn't wait to get to work. All of that. And I think we shot it very quickly, in didn't, yeah, five weeks or something. So it was exciting, yep. We've got another clip to show from an, another film of yours, which is Newsfront. Good, yes. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> now, this is the, the film where you paired up with Phil Noyce as the, yep. the director. Um, and, of course, um, people will be familiar with the significance of Newsfront as a, a description of the development of the film industry and the TV industries in Australia. Um, but also the film itself, itself has a very interesting history because we lost it for a very long time. It was The rights were bought up and taken off to America and... The film couldn't be shown in Australia for about oh, 20 years. Oh, I didn't years. know that. But, well, also, Careful's got a similar story. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's part of the sort of the, the lost moment of Australian cinema that's only very, fairly recently been returned. So consequently, there's a lot of interest again in this film because it was, it was sort of taken Careful away. Careful's in the same in package. In the same package. Stolen by the same Yanks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, so the wow. Pepper distribution True. deal controversy, you can Google that and you'll see lots of scandalous articles about Don't it. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> no. Pe- Pepper, P-E-P-P-E-R. Um, bought them in perpetuity. For they bought the rights in perpetuity and took them, and took the films away and that meant they could never be screened here. And refused to screen. In, I, I can't talk about Newsfront, but in Careful, the BBC wanted to buy it. They refused to sell it. Um, they, it's a very complicated tax evasion um, story and me and my lawyers with very little money fought it for a long time. Um, because the guy who's now dead, who was the chairman of the New South Wales Film and... Television Office. Television Office, had invested in the film. And uh, he'd got me to sign... This is not about Wendy, but it got me to sign um, that they had the right to negotiate the international rights, but not the right to sign off on them. Well, of course, he signed off on them, and he sold them to his mate. Um, Yeah. uh, For... $60,000 $60,000 worldwide in perpetuity, everything known now and transmissions to be known in the future. Is it all right now, John? Yes, the, the rights were all returned to Australia about uh, six or seven years, years ago. 30 years after the event. About 30 years after the event. And um, this is a large package of films that included films like The Night the Prowler and... A number of very significant yeah. Australian films. So, uh, Newsfront itself has an interesting story, which is actually, which relates to the story it tells, which is about Americans taking over the film industry. The so, movie tone. New, I forget which one was movie it? tone. Movie was the, tone. The Americans and yeah, the, taking over the Australian Cine Sound. That's right. It, thanks. Well, Cine Sound is the historical one, but I'm not sure if it was Cine Sound in the movie. I can't remember. I think so. It is. Okay. I think, I think it might be. Um, anyway, let's show the clip from Newsfront, the trailer, please. Oh, this is a nice one, the music. 
Go to Cannes? No, no, no. Um, I think I was working. So I think I was always working when my films were going to Cannes. So I went last year actually with um, Salvation, the film I did with Paul Cox, but not just to have a look because I'd never been before. It was, um, it was interesting. No, I'd never, never been while um, the, the festival was on. It was sort of interesting. I don't need to go again. <laughs> unless I really think unless you're Brad or Hans there's not much point going really that's what you you sort of way down there mm, so News, Newsfront's uh, I mean it's an interesting return to clothes for you for a start it's uh, you're fairly fully clothed in that oh, film I know and what fabulous clothes mm, and exactly. the designer was the Norma Morrisot who did all the Mad Max films mm. and it was made in um, the late 70s which, of course, marks the beginning of a very golden period of Australian production. You know, it's a mm, definitely. prolific, mm. um, lots of period films. We have the Never Never, um, Getting of Wisdom, Chant of Blim- Jimmy, Jimmy Blacksmith. Blacksmith. I mean, My Brilliant Career mm. so in that period. Yeah. Um, do, you have, do you have a sense when you remember that period of it being a golden era for oh, Australian absolutely. cinema? Oh, totally, yes. Yeah, it was. Um, and there were just there were just so many films being made and um, fabulous scripts around and a, a lot of it period until uh, ten years later people were saying oh, we're sick of the period films why can't we do something modern you know I actually don't think they did you know I think a lot of the audience weren't sick of it and I think on the budgets mm. we had we had some of the best production designers and costume designers definitely when you look at Picnic mm. at Hanging Rock. Mm. We made we it was made at South Australia for three hundred and eighty thousand dollars, <laughs> and Storm Warrior was made for two hundred and forty. And Sunday Too Far Away, there were films oh. we all made down in South Australia in the very early seventies. I mean, it was early seventies, but we were making them with those wonderful vistas and and um, old historic houses and so on. I think the production values were, were never better than that period definitely up to the early 80s yeah and um working with phil noise because you you made another film with with phil is that right yes um um, was it mid 80s we did shadows Shadows of of the peacock Peacock. there was another title they had for it too shadows of the peacock or um um what was it it's 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 just check your cv and um I remember I was in Europe and, and my agent said, oh, come back. It's also noise and Echoes uh, of Paradise. Echoes of Paradise. Oh, God. I don't know which one. I think I, think I might prefer that more than um, Shadows of the Peacock. But anyway, there you go. That was sort of set in Bali. <laughs> but shot in Thailand. But shot in Thailand. We, and we have a, a trailer for that later. So we can oh, excellent. But Phil was terrific. Yeah, I, I came back in whenever, you know, late 70 to 77, I think, to do Newsfront. And David Elphick was producing it, and I just read this amazing script by Bob Ellis and thought, mm. oh, how fantastic. And um, 
I'm in. Yeah, count me in. So, and we again, we shot that quite quickly too. And Bob Ellis, you've worked on films that he's written scripts for. There was Slow Nights. Yes, um, Warm Nights, Nights on a, a Slow Moving, moving train. train. He um, wrote the uh, script for it as well as directed. Yeah. And also he co-wrote parts of um, My First Wife with Paul Cox. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you want to elaborate on... Uh, Making movies with Bob Ellis or no, or, no, <laughs> no. Look, it wasn't too bad, but I do remember at one point on warm nights, I did, he wanted me to do something. I said, "No, I'm not doing that. Look, would you just, would you just get off the set while I work out what I want to do or something?" The poor guy. I mean, how awful. I said, "I know you're the director, but I don't like the way you're, you're directing me or something." I said, "I'll just direct myself or something." I was just awful. <laughs> poor guy. I went, "Oh, okay, Wendy." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a funny guy and witty and all of that, but it was his... Well, no, he, he tried big time. Mm. He did. And pass, the script was... Mm. Uh, just an observation. Uh, Bob, of course, is, um, is notorious in terms of Newsfront for, for insisting that his name be taken off the That's film. Right. And then, of course, once the film was successful, <laughs> insisting that his name be put back on. And I suspect the producers had a great deal of pleasure in just wringing it out a little bit longer. <laughs> but anyway, the... Uh, uh, one of Bob's observations, which, you may, which I think is a very interesting theory, and it may well be worth uh, pursuing in a different forum and a different stage, but one of the qualities that, that I know Bob admired so much, admires so much about Wendy is, the, is that, uh, that cool but, but passionate uh, quality that, that I think we all admire. And, and Bob made an interesting observation that many of our top actresses, and he mentioned Helen Morse and Wendy, um, Noni Hazelhurst, Judy Davis, all of them come from uh, a background of at least English fathers, if not both parents English. And Bob felt that, that there was something really, in terms of Australian films, and in, particularly in terms of, of uh, female actors rather than male actors, he thought there was something about that tension between the British and the Australian that, as exemplified in those four actresses, as an example, that Bob thought lended a gr loaned a great deal of dramatic tension to their work. I don't know whether people That's would want to pursue that or it? not. But, yeah, that is interesting, that, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that would account for the coolness, really, that, hot, that restraint of the English, which mm. my father definitely was. But uh, um, Bob's theory was yeah. that you could see it similarly... You know, in, in to a greater or lesser degree, according to the part and whatever. But you could see it similarly in Helen's work and in Naomi's yeah. work and Judy's. Interesting. Yeah. There's another theory about some of the very successful Australian actors of, from that period onwards that um, many of them were either born overseas and then came to Australia as very young mm. children, mm. or their parents, as mm. in your case, were originally mm. from another country. Mm. And the, the theory goes that you know there's something about shifting cultures like that and having to perform. In to some fit way, in. to fit mm, in, well, that that adds credibility to to their later careers as actors. Mm, yeah. I, 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 the other the observation theory. about that about that that period, particularly through the seventies, is of course, you know, the great the great cultural shifts that happened in Australia in the early seventies. Not as exemplified by the the election of the Whitlam government, but uh, but that was already, you know, in theatre it had started to happen once again with Bob Ellis and Michael Boddy with the uh, the Legend of King O'Malley, and and so through the seventies it was that sense that and in TV we you know we struck as actors we were marched in the streets here in Melbourne and in Sydney demanding more local content local drama content on our our TV and that was yeah, successful for a time, and certainly through that that period of the the 70s and into the early 80s i think we actually thought that that's what 
the future was going to be, that we would be making movies and miniseries. And, and, you know, there was more local content on our TV screens in those days than there is now. There was something like an average of 14, 15 hours per week of drama, and I think now it's down to about four. So we really thought that that was the way that it was going to go. And, and you mentioned Wendy being in, in homicide and stuff like that. I mean, Crawfords were a fantastic institution, particularly if you're an actor working in the Sydney. because too, As a training ground, yeah. but because they were smart enough to know that if they brought an actor down, it was only one return airfare and they may as well keep them down here for two or three weeks and get so you know you could land not just a homicide but you could also do a division four and a matlock <laughs> or, and so it was really like a small studio system out there at abbotsford and not just for actors but i mean they trained an enormous amount of technicians writers craftspeople. it was a huge huge industry and and one which we haven't subsequently replaced but it did influence and had a very strong positive influence on our on our industry at that period to the extent that we thought it was that's what the future may be like yeah. <laughs> ah. well we uh, i mean all of the abc stuff now uh, drama is outsourced isn't it so we're yes. not even ch- mm. training our own people anymore i mean there's nowhere except for the well, afters. Well, the film school and, and, and Swinburne, and Swinburne, Swinburne yeah. terrific. But, but that's so, become RMIT now, hasn't it, down here? Is that related um, to RMIT? VCA. VCA. Swinburne merged with VCA, but then yeah. Swinburne re-established a film school in uh-huh. the wake of that decision. So oh, there's right. now, now one at VCA and one at Swinburne. Oh, that's good. The more the merrier. Yeah. Um, we were talking a little bit about your, your working... In, I think in the absence of a studio system, what you end up doing is working with the same people over and over again, but on different projects. So, yeah. so Phil Noyce you had a couple of films with, and, and obviously um, Lex as well. But one director you have done quite a lot of work with is Paul Cox. Yeah. Um, and we have a, a trailer for Lonely Hearts, which I'd oh, like to okay. show now. <laughs> and, then, and then we can talk a little bit about your work with Paul. Yeah. That's okay. Lovely. Could we have the, the trailer for Lonely Hearts, please? Now, what can we do for you, sir? This is Peter Thompson, piano tuner, who's feeling a little frayed at the edges. And he has, by the way, just lost his mum. But as one door closes, another opens. This is Patricia Kernow, who, as you can see, works in a bank. She's rather shy, timid, about to embark on a new adventure. She happens to have contacted the same introduction agency as Peter. You don't think she's a good yell for me? Not at all, Mr. Thompson. She's the type who needs a mature man. Now let's see what a proper appliance can do. <laughs> now, dinner for two at her place. What exactly does a, a piano tuner do? Well, it is pianos, basically. What do you mean? That's Peter's sister. <laughs> We're in the same outfit during the war. Oh, uh, Bruce. You've got gravy on your tie. Oh, shit. Her hubby, Bruce. You can show him that place if you like. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'll go. I'll go home, thanks. That was close. Patricia benefits from a little counselling. There is nothing the matter with sexual inexperience. I think I'd better go. Please stay. I should know about your week. I think we should go to bed together. But not, uh, not, you know, hmm. not do anything. A word from the wise. The old gore bones. There's no stopping them sometimes. That's true. Don't you leave one incident and spoil your whole relationship. She tries not to. What about that? That sounds like you've got a boyfriend. 
How is he worth making up his stories? Could you just leave me alone? Problems never seem to come singly. Would you please let me live my own life? Top of page. And this is George, amateur theatre director. Where's Peter? Yeah. Do you know this man? Yes, I do. You'll remember Lonely Hearts for its warmth, its insight and humour. True to life, a sensitive love story simply told. Lonely Hearts, awarded Best Film, 1982 Australian Film Awards. A gentle film, a love story that wasn't meant to be so funny. <laughs> That's one of my favourites. It's one of my favourites and... Uh, uh, I like it for a few reasons. Firstly, that um, it reveals a, a side to Paul Cox's direction which people don't often associate, which is his, his talent for comedy. I mean, it's, it's a wonderfully mm, mm, humorous mm. film. Yeah. Um, and people often think of him as a very serious mm. art director, and yet mm. it's not always the case. And, and if you look at well, that, that was co written by John Clark. So that has a lot of um, John's humour in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it took a couple of years to, 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 to polish and, and get together, and Philip Adams was the producer, I think, when he had yeah. that company. What was yes. it? Uh, it was one with Packer, wasn't it? Anyway, um, yeah, so that was honed quite a bit, that script. Yeah. And it, it pays off. You can really see mm. it in the, in the mm. film. I also like it because many years before Jane Campion, um, it features a, a character who says, let's have a look at your piano, and means something else, which, you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and the gorgeous Norman, he's be- beautiful yeah, yeah, yeah. in that film, Norman Kay. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I really like about it is I thought Paul Cox really went out a little bit um, to, to cast you against what was becoming, in a sense, your type. Um, totally. Um, uh, Philip didn't want me. No one wanted me. Um, and it was only Paul's perseverance that, um, and him sticking with me that I, he said he wouldn't make it unless... You know, I was in it, and that's the only way I got to do it, actually. Um, yeah, so he's been, yeah, he's a really loyal, fabulous man. So, yeah. And, yes, I was playing all those glamorous, as you say, you know, glamorous um, sort of ice queens, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. So this was something totally different. We didn't need a makeup artist because I don't wear makeup, and I could go to the op shop and buy the worst clothes possible, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was fun, Yeah. <laughs> it also demonstrated, I mean, if people hadn't realised that by then, it did also demonstrate that, that, that Wendy was a, you know, a serious actress, that there was a huge, yeah, you know, there exactly. was a lot of training and a lot of, and a lot of experience. And when did you do Cat in a Hot Tin Roof? When did you do that on stage? When was that with John Huggins? That would have been a couple of years after was that, it after wouldn't that, it? Yeah. Um, I think... I mean, you know, those, those big roles, those 81. big stage roles have also featured in it and... and and I can see that when I see stuff like Lonely Hearts or all of Wendy's stuff. But you know, I see something like Lonely Hearts, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that there's a there's a considerable, you know, that this is not just hit and miss sort of uh, film acting where the where the director's been smart enough to let the camera run and just cut around the bad bits and all that. This is you know real quality, you know, acting, and uh, and you don't always get that. Well, while you're talking about that, (laughs) the next clip I've got is for an indecent obsession. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you came to to cast Wendy? Oh, well, Wendy was cast before... uh, I mean, I got it because uh, the original uh, director on it had 
had run into an impasse with the with the producers and a lovely guy, a director who'd who'd done a lot of TV and some films before, and I think he just got to that point in his career where where he didn't want to do something that he didn't have as much control over as he as he wanted, and and so they parted ways and they needed someone on on short notice, and I think I'd just made the transition from directing for theatre to. Uh, directing a mini series with Kennedy Miller, and, and then the, and so you know once you get one thing done, then other people who uh, become more interested. And anyway, this this came up, and I, I, I was remember being in the country with my uh, uh, in Western New South Wales in my wife's cousin's place, and our agent at the time was Bill Shanahan. He found me there and uh, said, "This has come up. Would you be interested?" I said, "Of course." Um, and I think 24 hours later, I was on, actually on Lord Howe Island scouting the the location, and then came back and 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 figured I'd I'd really. But I mean, in the meantime, the producers had obviously talked to Wendy and and uh, the actors in it and said, "Listen, we're changing director. You know, we've got this other guy. Do you mind if he comes on?" <laughs> um, and uh, I guess. He said yes. Them said yes for it to happen. So, Can't wait. so that's how that, that's how it happened. And for me, it was it was a reunion of sorts with with Gary Sweet as well, because Gary had just we just done the Bodyline series together, and I'd worked with most of the other actors, and it was a great. Um, it was a fantastic collection of actors, and and I enjoyed the basic premise of it, which was you know a, a mental ward in the tropics at the end of the war. I thought inherently. Had dramatic possibilities, and, I lo- and 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 six really, really strong, very clear characters, uh, and very good actors playing them. And I mean, the thing I loved about the movie was the performances. Um, clearly, from my own background, I was really, really interested in what actors do rather than what technicians do. You know, um, this is a period when there's a lot of ensemble films being made. Yeah, and, and this I was. I think it comes out of the miniseries. Yeah, uh, partly. Yeah, I think it was that climate, mm. but. But uh, I guess the point I want to make is that the really six really good, strong male actors there, and yet all of their performances, I realised watching it as we as we worked our way through it, and it was a pretty quick shoot too. I think we did it in four six, weeks or no, something. Six, like that. It's six, about six weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, and and they're all very distinctive performances. But what I what I find found fascinating at the time, thought was terrific at the time, was that that Wendy's character. She was really clear on her attitude to each one of the... It was a very specific attitude to each one of the six the six guys. And where that could have been... You know, other actors may have generalised some of that. I, I, I just thought it was terrific that Wendy made it really specific in terms of each... They, so that each one of those individual relationships were, was very well defined. And I thought that was quite... Um, I thought that was quite clever at the time, the way she did that. Yeah, I was... <laughs> She probably was a long time. I mean, there were six no, fantastic actors. There was, uh, because I just remember all that the characters were yeah. brilliantly and individually written as well. Yeah, yeah, each yeah. One. Denise Morgan yeah. in Melbourne, once again, learned her craft at, uh, at Crawford's, uh, was, did the adaptation of the Colin McCulloch book, and she did a fantastic mm. job, I thought, in, in that, making very good characters. But they were a terrific array of actors. Um, the late Bruno Lawrence, who was fantastic in it. Uh, Richard, Richard Moyer. Richard Moyer, whose career, unfortunately, has been curtailed by Parkinson's, um, Gary Sweet, uh, uh, Tony Sheldon currently playing yes. Priscilla in the in the West End, um, Mark Little, who I think is also still, is he in, still in England or is he back here? I think he's in England. I think he's in London. And, um, and Jonathan Hyde, 
who I'm sure his bank manager is thrilled, has become one of Hollywood's favourite um, Englishmen, and he gets a lot of movies villains, over there. English villains. English villains, yes. He's wonderful. And yeah. so those six guys uh, and Wendy just made it just made it really fascinating for me to, to observe it. It was just a really fascinating combination of talents, and I was Should very happy to do trailer? it. Mm. Yeah. Right. Can we have the trailer for an indecent obsession? Yeah, I want to look at this one. You okay? Then? Yes, I'm okay. I'm going to sit with you. I'll fall down the stairs. No, don't you move. <laughs> it's dark. From the author of the best-selling book The Thornbirds, Colleen McCulloch's An Indecent Obsession. Yes, I will. But not like all the others. Looks like you're in for a bit of competition, Captain Oxford University. Oh, shut up, freak. <laughs> this isn't like that. She'd never break the rules. No flame and fear. Oh, piss ants. He's not tropper. He's just different. And she'll find out how different. You reckon Sis knows we're all in love with her? Not in love, just love. She's the only woman whose footsteps I know. There's something about you, isn't it? Al Michael. And I know what it is. Did you make a sexual advance to Sergeant Wilson? Yes. Young, old, male, female. It's all meat to me. I'm not a murderer. What would God think about that, eh, Ben? No. What do you think God thinks about that being a murderer, eh? Do you think they sold your film well, Lex? Sorry? Do you think they sold your film well? Uh, well, I think that uh, it's pretty well what it was about, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once again, it's, it's just, I, I love seeing those characters again. They were, just, they were such a good collection of, of characters. And I, I, and I think just the way that Wendy had to deal with all of them was, was fascinating drama. Mm, yeah, I forgot how sort of freaky that whole situation well was, it was it's it? such it's an artificial like, situation you know being stuck on an island and we couldn't get off this place you know it was lord howe island and there were only two i think there were two planes a week or something that brought in supplies <laughs> yeah. and it was just and it's a small island to be stuck with the whole entire film crew on for six weeks going doing some show about madness um <laughs> <laughs> and it did get to the point where I thought, mm, maybe we should be turning the cameras around because I think what's happening off screen is a little bit madder than what's happening on screen and how soon before well, we did, can go home. Did you know that a lot, a lot of the maddies were 
they were acting on acid. <laughs> Did oh. you know that? They were doing all sorts That's of dreadful what? stuff. Yeah, huh? I mean, oh, we, just, we just dropped a tap. <laughs> just, but you've got a scene coming up in a minute. Oh, no, we'll be fine. <laughs> uh-huh. okay. um, the, when will that kick in? <laughs> they weren't it being encouraged to do so. No. I won't know. Oh, no, that, you didn't know. It was oh, like, no, well, I'll, it was like no. two weeks into oh, it no, when no, I was no. getting it out of the back of the catering truck. They were naughty, <laughs> yeah. So very naughty. They were naughty, 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 naughty. Not naming any names. No. And we're all much older and wiser now. That's much, right. Much. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I, I didn't. That like a producer or something. No. <laughs> But I did go at the back of the catering trucks every now and again. Oh. And have stern words with people. Yeah. Oh, you had to. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. oh, Inhaling all the time. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Morning tea was a tough time. You kind of get, get them after them. This is a very prolific period for you when, when you were making this film. You, you were really doing mm. back-to-back production, from what I can see, from reading this extensive CV. <laughs> Um, you've got, um, you know, Lonely Hearts, Careful He Might Hear You, Return to Eden. Oh, that's right, um, yeah. Five Mile Creek, Just an Ep. Yep. My First Wife. Um, I Can't Get Started, Remember Me, An Indecent Obsession, oh, Promises gosh. to Keep. Oh. America, the TV miniseries where you played oh. a, a major oh, character. That's right, yep. Um, and then the film we're going to show an, a clip for or trailer for next, which is Shadows of the Peacock, mm-hmm. um, Boundaries of the Heart, Warm nights on a slow moving train. These are all just backed up one after the other. Wow. And they're an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Why, right yeah, why are they richer? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm doing okay. It's okay, but yeah. Anyway, that's. And again, the um, point. all in that period, you're returning to Paul Cox, you know, and, and then sort of doing bigger budget things, things in America, things on TV, a whole range of different, different products. Yeah. Right? I said it's always gone for the. Script, not the budget. Yep. And when you develop a relationship like you have with Paul Cox, mm. you, you want to nurture it. Uh, yes, and, and also in, in Australia he is what, uh, one of the few directors who would manage to get a film up once, once, possibly yep. once a year or once every mm. 18 months. Mm. Um, so in a way, um, sometimes he was the only sort of person managing to get a, a budget up. But also, yes, um, we have a great friendship and um, uh, a loyalty to each other, I guess. And I guess he, because he also works with a, an ensemble of actors that he brings back in repeatedly, yeah. there's a familiarity there, isn't there? Because you get to work Definitely. with people again. And, and He's yeah. a great believer in repertory. Absolutely. Um, yeah, exactly. And becomes a bit like a sort of surrogate family to a certain extent when you're working on it. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll move on then to Shadows of the Peacock yep. um, and, and have a look at that. Um, now, this is a, a film that's about um, a Balinese dancer, but it's shot in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and is somewhat, when you try and read up about this film, you'll see there's some very confusing accounts of the, the plot. People can't quite work out where it is and, and what it's doing. And um, the love interest that was the gorgeous John Lone, who went on straight from this film to go and play The Last Emperor in Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. And he was brought up with the Peking Opera, John, from That's a very right. young, young age. So he was in he, M. Butterfly as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, it was quite, quite, <laughs> quite, 
quite a funny little shoot, that one. I was going to say there's uh, many reports of dra- off-scene dramas or, or behind-the-camera dramas going on. Well, we didn't quite have a script. Once we weren't going to shoot in Bali, everything had to change. So the script was, wasn't finished but, and we were on the plane to Thailand. So day by day we're getting scripts put under the door and I'm going, what? And John's going, I... One point he threw it on the guy and said, I'm not saying this shit! And stomped on it and stomped on it. And it was the way he did it. It was very funny. And I go, yeah, what's this? I can't say. It was so. It was the screenwriter long... was Phil Noyce's then wife, wife Jan, and, yeah. and who was who was lovely and try. And, and the original script read fine, but once we had to change it and and had so little time, and it was sort of all done on the run. It it became very sort of. Um, dramatic, uh, the change, to say the least. And then you're in a foreign country and, it, and it's, you know, like um, 40 degrees Celsius and so bloody hot and um, and, and John's wearing a long, long black wig in, in that kind of heat that's, um, yeah, it became quite um, dramatic. Well, let's have a look at the drama of the trailer, mm. Shadows of the Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, of course. Mm. Now, what's this one? I haven't seen this one either. Oh. I feel like I'm taking my first deep breath in years. This must be one of the first times I've really taken my life into my own hands. <laughs> Not that I have any idea what I'm going to do with it. In a jungle as beautiful and tangled as the human heart. Where's the voiceover? I've got to go. The search for yourself always leads to another. That's Raka. He's from Bali. The island of the gods. He had this... this easily go back. Perhaps you should let go. And then the answer might come to you. Trust me. It was nothing. I know what I saw and heard. Come on, Marie. That's naive. Does everyone know? Does everybody know? Maria, you don't belong here. Along with me and your kids. No, George. I belong where I want to be. A woman caught between two lives. Shh. Shh. Echoes of paradise. Oh, now that's moving like a turkey, isn't it? I know. I belong where I want to be. No. Oh, I'm not watching that one. That's for sure. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I belong where I want to be. <laughs> it wasn't a high point of your career. No, 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 it wasn't a high point. No, we won't. Um, yeah, this is a high point of your career. Exactly. Now. This is the next wonderful. one, yes. In terms of, I mean, um, Jewel talked about how you choose films for the script rather than. You know, any well, it was good to begin with. <laughs> no, no, I, I take your point there that there were changes to the script. Do you read? Yeah. You obviously then read every script that that you end up agreeing to of to perform. 
You yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you read about actors, they just rely on an agent to filter things for Oh, no, them. no. Sometimes I will only read my bits. But that's only happened recently. <laughs> yeah, of course, you always, yeah. Have you ever worked with a director who's you know sat down and said you know I'm really interested in your input on the character and let's let's move things around a bit? Well, that happened with Lonely Hearts. Um, I had quite a big in- input. I decided that I thought she should work in a bank and these were the kind of parents she should have, and that did eventually sort of filter into it. So, yeah, um, but not very often, really. It's mm-hmm. normally a fait accompli, and that's fine. You somehow integrate it into what you want to do or how you see it, but. Um, mm. Before we get to, to Careful He Might Hear You, which is the last no, trailer I was, we're going to No, can I just butt in there? I, yeah. think, I, think, um, I, I think Wendy's underselling that a little bit. I'm, I mean, I think there are two... Well, I think there are two distinct processes. One is, you know, pre-production, if you like, <laughs> where, where first you read the script and then you start to discuss it and all of that. Uh, and, and so Wendy gives the example of Lonely Hearts, where at that stage she had that sort of input into a script. But I would... Uh, certainly the three scripts... I did when, with Wendy, while they were they were drafts that didn't change substantially from you know one to to another to the the what we ended up shooting. I would say that Wendy's impact on the script was enormous, um, and mm. because as and 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 it's probably more unself consciously that she does that. It's it's the quality as a, of that I think the the really good actors have is that they can they can expose they can both expose and cover up a script. So a really good actor can if there are holes in the script they can cover it up, they can make it glide through so that you don't really become aware of those script problems probably until you're in editing and think, gee, I wish I'd solved that at, at script stage um rather than waiting till now. Uh so I mean but but even better is the actor who can do that, but at the same time, uh, they can't lie. You know that there's something wrong with the script, be- simply because they're such a good actor that they, they, they even glossing over the faults, you, you know, you suddenly become aware, you think, oh, I think I'd better go back and have a look at that scene, because I get, I, I think it's probably not as good as I think it is now that I've seen the actors. And this was certainly true with um, Remember Me, the, the script that, that Wendy and Richard Moyer did together. That was fantastic. And that's where you really trust the actors and you just see, you know, if they're having trouble with it, it's not because they're bad actors. You know, they haven't just suddenly, for this one scene, become bad actors. So it either means that the script or the direction is crappy mm. and, you know, we better sort yeah. that out real soon because otherwise we are going to have a problem in editing. And and so I think, I think Wendy brings that sort of impact to a script, which is, as I say, is not probably not a conscious process, but I think the the weight of acting ability I think has that has that effect on a script. Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was going to ask yeah, about um, you know when it doesn't work. Is well, what it, it, is, you know, it becomes yeah, very oh, clear, and you have to have blinkers on this, if yeah. you know if you think it's oh this is going to be okay. I mean, Wendy's just mucking around. That's why the scene's not working. Mm. No, it's not when the it's case. Clunky, it's, you know, yeah. when it's clunky, it's clunky, and you think you'd I better fix this. Because and you often fix it on the day. You go with with the director and work out. Well, if we just put this around here, or take that bit out, or we don't need to say as much, we can do it with a shot. Or and that's really interesting. You know, that once again, the impact from uh, and I know that with with really good actors, you know, you tend to think, you know, actors are people who say, you know, can I have more lines? Can I have more lines? 
And I found that the really good actors say, especially on film, say, can I have less lines? I don't need to say that. I don't think that's too explicit. I don't want to say those words. Cut that speech because I can do it on a look. And uh, I think, you know, mm. you, yeah. you disregard them at your own peril when they do that. I was going to ask about Luigi's Ladies, the the movie that you do get a screenwriting credit for, even though as you I said, shouldn't, it was a, no, I shouldn't have had you that. You shouldn't have had it. Not really, no. But um, I must have been very ego driven at that point. Must have <laughs> had my head up my ass or something. <laughs> um, we don't have a, a trailer for it, but I just thought it's a, it's actually quite interesting film in the sense that so many women worked on it. Um, in did you, you ever know. see it? Ah, no, I've no. seen clips, but not No, it's one. quite good, it's quite good. There's Jenny Clare. Yeah. Jenny Clare? Yeah, and directed by Judy Morris. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there was some good stuff in it. It wasn't complete, it, it, it wasn't, the script in the end wasn't right, mm. really. It, it wouldn't have taken much to get it right, but we didn't have the money to reshoot or do anything. We'd mm. sort of lost um, finance mm. halfway through, I think. Um, but that was exhausting. I, I just have so much... Um, admiration and respect for producers. I just don't know how they are. Well, they don't have to act in the film as well for a start. Oh, that's true. But it's just like, it's, it's the responsibility is huge and it goes on forever. True. And I just go, you've that's got true. this thing, yeah. Um, I found it, that I had two experiences, boundaries and, and the other, and that was enough. I went, no, I think I'll just stick to acting. <laughs> I found it all... Um, yeah, too exhausting and, and too much responsibility and you've got to live with it really forever. Mm. Well, this is a, a good opportunity to draw Jill into the conversation because we do have a, a trailer for Careful He Might oh, Hear You. Good. And this, of course, is the, the film for which you won your AFI award after many nominations. You, um, I know. You finally got one. one. I finally got one. Um, and you, it was for the right part and right film, so that's good. You've been, in a sense, more successful with Logies because you're, you've... One yeah, and who gives a for? shit about them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, it's just like, please. But power without glory and return to Eden were your two logies. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah I think they, 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 they were quite good. Very good parts and great series. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> um, but Careful Him I Hear You is the, is the film that, um, for many people, is the film that you define and which defines you, in a sense, to them as, as an audience. It's, it's the film when I polled people at work and said, you know, favourite Wendy Hughes movie. That was the film that most often was said to me. Um, yeah, I find a, a similar thing, I think, yeah, because it was just so different and so sumptuous and, um, yeah, sort of iconic in a way, that, that, that film with the music and the look and the... Yeah. Can I tell a story about how she nearly didn't get it? Please. Oh, please. <laughs> I don't think you've ever heard this. No. Oh, oh, I okay. was in New York uh, having dinner with Sumner Locke Elliott who had given... Uh, sold me the rights, and he brought along to dinner Vincent Price, the you know the horror, uh, the vampire, vampire, mm. and his wife Coral Brown. Those of you who are my age and plus in the audience will remember Coral Brown as a um, wonderful, glamorous actress, Australian actress who went to Hollywood and did and married Vincent, who's a fantastic cook by the way, and. Uh, Anyway, we were all chatting, 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 chatting. And Sumner, who was a wonderful mimic and always doing things like this, hold on, he said, you could get her, if you play your cards right, you could get her to play... No, I've forgotten. Vanessa. The old, no, 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 the old aunt. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot her name. Hattie. Hattie. The Mervyn one. Hattie. 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 Oh, Hattie. 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 You could get her to play uh, the Aunt Hetty. And I went, one. are you sure? Anyway, I went, yeah, yeah. So the dinner finished and, you know, she was 70 then and she looked incredibly glamorous. She always looked after herself, Coral. Vince, Vincent said, I'll cook you dinner when you come to L.A., where I had to chase 20th Century Fox about something again. So I get to Hollywood. I couldn't make dinner. Uh, so Coral said, I'll meet you at the Bel Air at the Polo Lunch for lunch. Right now's my moment. She's obviously quite keen. And I thought she... I, I was worried that she was too glamorous, but she was 70 Well, she arrived for lunch on a hot Los Angeles afternoon in a full-length mink, and she had a black picture hat on with, a, with those wonderful veils. Oh, no, my God! And she swanned in. And we had lunch. We had, you know, the Waldorf salad that you do in LA. You don't have anything else. And we had this conversation where I think I'm talking to her about playing the role of the old girl. And she is talking to me about playing the role of Vanessa. Well, the blood ran cold. <laughs> and only towards the end of the lunch, there's just the two of us at these swish intimate bonquettes. She looked at me and she said, Darling, I know I've just had a facelift or two, but I mean, those boys, they can put Vaseline on the lenses now, can't they? I mean, I'll carry it off for you. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> I want to get out of there. <laughs> and I don't know how I got out of there because she's a very imposing one. Oh, and, and Vincent Price had rung during the lunch saying, Darling, if you do the deal with uh, Coral, I'll come and, and cope with the catering. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to do it so anyway so anyway I got out of there <laughs> somehow and, and she didn't play Aunt Hetty oh my goodness that, what was the name of the actress who did play Aunt Hetty Colleen Clifford Colleen Clifford yes. yes she didn't live much longer after that I think she was pretty old but anyway that 90. was mm. I don't think script, you ever who knew who did the adaptation who no. did the script Michael Jill? Jenkins Michael Jenkins well, yes. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. very good that's a funny story yeah. Uh, well, how did you tell her that she didn't get, have the part? I did, never rang her back. <laughs> <laughs> rang. Oh, did you get terrible. any Christmas cards after that? No. 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 There's an apocryphal story about Vincent Price and Coral Brown on their, allegedly on their honeymoon going through Showcast. Do you know that story? No. You know oh, Showcast, the big book yes. that has all the, you know, and identifying people that they'd both slept with. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple who do that every Apocryphal, night from the I don't TV. Know. Hmm? <laughs> we really should let Wendy talk about this um, beautiful film. movie. But as a producer, knowing uh, who I wanted and actually knowing who I wanted for all the other parts too, of course, inevitably, they were all with one agent. And he was asking telephone numbers for all of them, particularly Wendy, Johnny Hargraves and Robin Nevin and um, Geraldine. Geraldine Turner. And I remember getting in an absolute fury, you know, because he got so much to do and he was asking outlandish money. I was working in old offices in um, Centennial Park, the, what were then were the Royal Showgrounds, and they used to let out the warehouses and things for people to do short-term leases. And I'm sitting in this um, dusty, uh, dirty warehouse with a trestle table and phones ringing and everything, and I picked up the whole top of the budget which had the cast budget, the top, what we call above the line, the, the big ones, 
cut off that bit, got in the car, drove down to Wallara, up the stairs. They said, you can't go in. He's in the meeting, you can't go in. I went straight in. I said, they're all your actors. That's my total budget. Fix it and ring me back before lunch. <laughs> and so we all got paid really well, actually. <laughs> and then he started. Well, you could take something out of the art department. I can't take anything out of the art department. <laughs> well, why did you? Anyway, so that's. It. And the final story I want to tell you about Wendy. So we talked to Wendy, and Wendy has just had a baby. And our designer, Bruce Finlayson, was buying stuff to make. He was paying $95 a metre for the fabric. My budget's going through the fabulous stuff. 28 years ago, that's even more. It was huge. And, of course, everything's cut on the bias and everybody has to have a flat stomach and no tits for the 30s. Bruce goes to me, she's beautiful, but Wendy's got to do something about it. So Wendy and I... We enrolled in what was it? Oh, that's right. It was a Jenny Quinn. No, some exercise class. What was it? I said you have to go to flatten your stomach out. And he's built this whalebone corset for her. Just make me a corset. And (laughs) (laughs) so she says, if I'm going to one of those stupid gyms, she and I aren't into a lot of that stuff, as you can probably hear, you're coming with me. (laughs) (laughs) And they had this terrible machine, which was like a big rolling drum, and you had to fling yourself on the drum, and it had lumps coming down, and it did this to your stomach. Ridiculous. lied like this, discussing the script. Uh, We didn't last long. Didn't didn't we only last about three sessions? And then I just went, I'll just wear the girdle. We had a girdle that was like cement. I had a very flat stomach in the end. So, yes. And do you know, when the film was over, I tried to virtually give her those beautiful dresses and you didn't want them. Well, I knew I'd never fit into them again. I just knew that I'd start eating and I'd have to wear a girdle for the rest of my life. (laughs) But there was some nice coats, weren't there? Oh, I should have looked through that. Oh, I can't go there. I've got that black Persian lamb coat if you want it. I want it. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Let's have a look at the the trailer and you'll see some of the costumes that we've been discussing. Oh, I have to go and look at this one. You can have that, but... Can I? Full-length Persian lamb if you want it. Oh, go grab it. It's falling to pieces. Scott will appeal to the Supreme Court for full guardianship. He doesn't need two guardians. 
And if Sindon knew it was Vanessa, she'd die. Sindon is dead. Careful, he might hear you. Mm, very good. Short and sweet. Very good. Um, we've only got a few minutes to go, but I thought um, we might allow um, a couple of questions from the audience. If, if anyone's got a burning question they'd like to ask Wendy or Lex or Jill. There's someone... Yes, the lady with the hand up leaning forward slightly. Yes. I'll, re I'll repeat the question. Oh, here we go, a microphone. Sorry. Do I speak? Yeah. Um, there was a film made, I think, in the 1980s called The Mango Tree. Mm. It was period setting. And I thought Wendy was in it, but I don't think you were because it's not been mentioned no. today. Um, who was that? And it was the, that was um, Michael Pate, wasn't it, mm. who who'd produced it? Oh, okay. Mm. No, it wasn't me. No. Now, who was it? Sure, Holland. I can't remember who can't the, remember either. the female actress was. No, it wasn't Helen Morse. Or, no. 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 I can't remember. Die, was it? Anyway, it disappeared very quickly. Mm. Nobody's ever heard Wendy of it. Wendy wasn't in it, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened to Helen Morse? Don't hear about she's her. She's still around. Oh, Helen's yes. still around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's doing a lot of, a lot of theatre. Helen okay. decided very early on, she did a uh, miniseries for me, arguably... Bruce Beresford said the second worst miniseries made. He made the worst one, I made the next one. Um, <laughs> it wasn't true. Uh, and she was in it, Helen Morse. Mm -hmm. It was called Silent Reach. Okay. And not long after that, she said this sort of location work and, you know, hanging around for days, nothing happens, oh. not for me, I'll stick with theatre. Okay. And mm. she's really stuck to that almost mm. completely. I think she was in um, Western Australia working for the Black Swan Theatre Company, just recently doing the same um, show that Robin's doing here, the um, Year of Magical Thinking. So she still works a lot. Oh, yes, she still theater, works yeah. for theatre. Is there another question? Just down here in the front. Um, Jill, particularly for you, careful man, he might hear, seems to be a really high point in the Australian cinema to me. Your fantastic achievement. And I just wonder... Um, it's really a question Am about I rich? The no. The future of the industry, anything. Congratulations on doing it, of course, and to Wendy, of course, and everybody else. But um, I'm just wondering where you see the future of the industry going at the moment, and um, is there any chance we're going to have a film like that with those sort of production values, that quality, produced in Australia without the American or the overseas influences which seem to be driving... I'll just repeat the question for the people at the back. Mm -hmm. The question is about the film Careful He Might Hear You, and it's addressed to Jill and Wendy, um, and it wonders, you know, what... It, what is possible in relation to the current film industry in terms of the sorts of production values and the types of films that were being made in this period, such as Careful He Might Hear You? Well, thank you for your nice comments. Um, I've been out of the business a long time now. I, I've actually not worked for 14 or 15 years, believe it or not. My last job was running the drama department for the ABC here. Oh, and then I did... Um, what did I do? Yeah, and Snowy Mountain no, River Snowy series. River um, television series. A lot of money, no taste, you know, it's one or the other. Um, I don't think we'll see those days again. First of all, the technology has completely changed, the tastes. The story on Lola Montez, mm. and that is really the first inquiry she's got to do anything uh, since she finished Australia. And uh, if you want trained animals, she's one of two people you call. So, I mean, that's with dogs and horses and things in it. 
Um, I can't really answer about the production slate because A, I live in Melbourne and I've been out of it for so long and it depresses me so much. I sort of, you know, we get together and gossip but I don't mm. really keep up with the production slate anymore. No, there just doesn't seem to be um, much money around at all. And most films, one, two, three million dollars. You don't even get six million dollars to do a film or 15. I, I don't know, just these little small budgets that normally go to first time um, writers and film directors, which is great, but then there's not the other amount that will go to maybe your Fred Skepsi or your Lex Marinos or... So I, I don't know, and unless you can raise it privately, um, which is very hard. I mean, one of the reasons the 70s and 80s were so great was that there was this big tax incentive. So you could raise money privately as well as getting a little bit from the government, and the rest was all private. Um, it would make a couple of hundred films a year. And a lot we of weren't. them were bad, but a lot of them were good. I mean, so you have the good and the bad. So you know, the, the And the studios hadn't been built. Mm. Uh, and so we... We were not bringing in the Matrixes and the big American pictures. So there's probably no technicians here. So it's probably safe to say the new wave of funding and so on has brought in the Americans and the American money and they use their own directors and their own actors to a large extent. And the only people who have really made a bonanza out of it are our technicians. So our technicians are used to working for very big money, which makes them very expensive to hire for domestic stuff. Would that be mm. fair? Well, I think that is true. And I, I, I mean, I think the, the good ones will make a... You can still get, uh, you know, you maybe can still get a Russell Boyd as a cinematographer if it's a project he likes and he still has a commitment to... And he's semi-retired, but he still has a, a commitment mm. towards Australian cinema and he knows he can subsidise yeah, that by going off... Yeah, but a crew of 100. But you couldn't get a crew of 100, no. No, you'd be priced out. And and even when those, as Jill's saying, often it'll be the American producers and actors and directors, but it'll also often be the heads of department will, right. be, will be important as well. Oh, yeah, the well. Australians work underneath the um, so, US So, you know, the big, that sort of money is going, is going elsewhere and, and, and generally our people are not getting the, those opportunities. And yet we have five Academy Award-winning cinematographers. You know, we, there's no question we can produce the talent. Um, but it's finding the opportunities, and, and inevitably, as opportunities dry up here or don't exist, then then that talent has to go somewhere, and it goes offshore, and it starts to get offshore salaries, and then you know I they're mean, priced out of doing it here. Um, talking to young actors, you know, so if you're 20 or 22 or something, and my advice is to go to England or go to America because there's just not enough work here. You can't, you couldn't make a living. Unlike when I started mm. out, there was so mm. much happening. Mm. You could make a decent living, but now I just say, I'll go to the, go to the pilot season, really, or, um, tr you know, young enough, go over there, or England. Um, well, you, yes, there's just not enough work here, and you do... No, there's not. <laughs> That's simple Well, there's as all that. sorts of... I mean, just in answer to the question, there are all sorts of factors, not the least being the, the critical mass factor. There are, there are simply not enough of us to sustain a... A, a film industry domestically, mm. if the budgets are going to keep inflating, population-wise, yeah, there's yeah, just not exactly. enough. You know, we're, we're 20 million people. people. There's not mm. enough, not enough people. But the other observation that Mike Lee, the English director, made uh, in referring to his own movies uh, being made in England, but uh, equating that to making movies here, saying that you know they have the misfortune of having English as their main language, which means the United States becomes their biggest market. 
and that's that's the stumbling block for so many so many films because they either don't conform to American taste or they don't understand the accent and they want to redub it as they've done with some movies or they'll take a movie like Death in Brunswick and say, well, we like the movie but we'll remake it our own way. Uh, so that's, you know, there are, there are considerable impediments towards Australian movies getting um, that sort of exposure. Yeah. And even when they are distributed and, and exhibited in Australia, the fact is that they don't get anything like the marketing that goes to the major Ameri- American movies that come out that have already been marketed. The world already knows about the new Star Wars or the new... You know, it's like how hard is it to market it other than say it's on starting on Thursday. You know, you don't need to do much. But that tends to take most of... It seems to be that distributors put a lot of their money into marketing an overseas movie and disproportionately so when it comes to marketing an Australian movie. So, I mean, there's all those mitigating factors that make it very difficult, I think. Mm. But it's time for us to finish up, but I did want to bring it back to you, Wendy, because this is really about Wendy. It's your show. It's your oh show. Um, and I had two quick questions. Um, yes. Jill's come back into the industry and she's decided to produce a biopic of the life of Wendy Hughes. You can't be in it because you can't be in it. Who will play you? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, you could play yourself in World War Two. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On a train. Um, who, who would play... You. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, oh. Gee, that's a very Gee. good question. Who would I don't you know anyone. Who, who, who? I don't know the names of young actors. Abby Cornish would be pretty close yeah. to having some of the qualities, but some of the qualities that I think Wendy had at a comparable stage of her career, but I don't Oh, okay. Well, think she's quite lovely. She's about to come well, out I think she has some of the qualities, right. but I, I'm not quite sure of the... Uh, I haven't seen enough of her work to know whether she's got the same... She's in Jane Campion's new depth. film, Bright Star, yeah. I think. Um, well, we don't really have time, but unless it's not an extremely quick, very brief question. question. Go on. Is it brief? Well, okay. <laughs> Apparently, on Lonely Hearts, you selected your own costumes. And rather, I did. It's rather interesting that Paul Cox trusted you to clothe the role. Whereas a lot of directors would say that's the costume designer's job. No, he hates costume designers. He hates um, makeup artists. I do normally all my own makeup when I work with Paul, which I did in Salvation and on Lonely Hearts and My First Wife. And I normally wear my own wardrobe, except poor old Patricia in Lonely Hearts. It was so drab. I did have to go to the op shop. Um, and on, on Salvation, my daughter um, actually did the costumes on that, and she dressed me all in Laura Ashley. Oh, it looked so dated. It was perfect. Um, so, yeah, but Paul trusts all his um, actors really well, well with, with, with dialogue, with clothes, with, with everything, actually. He's pretty... Um, uh, what we're trusting, mm. and he actually gives us a lot of a lot of credit um, for being sort of slightly intelligent, I suppose. <laughs> so, yes. Last question. Um, we're familiar now with actors, um, in a sense, as being part of the promotional network of the cinema. So you know, audiences go along because they want to see a Russell Crowe movie, or they mm. they want to see a a movie with um, a particular actor in it. Do you think looking back over the five pages of Internet Movie Database CV that you have, there is a thing called a Wendy Hughes movie? Oh. And, and what would it be if there was? You mean within the CV there? Yeah, um, is there something that characterises your work that's 
different? Than- I think, well, no, a few things. I don't think I could do it all in one. I think um, careful, lonely hearts, and um, even boundaries, I think, to a, a certain extent, um, <coughs> boundaries of the heart. Um, no, I can't think of any one film, no. And then... A blend. I'd definitely say. Is there um, a kind of a, a quality that characterises the types of work Good that script. you chose? Good scripts, yeah. So they're often script-driven films. Yes, and, and and normally just um, really interesting, flawed characters, mm. but but at least something they've got some kind of balls about them. Some you know somewhere along the the line, I suppose. But definitely all flawed or searching or. They're often in a state of reflection, your characters, I think. They're often having qualms about something. Or well, I suppose to a certain extent that, is the, um, and, and that, that, that's, that whole sort of characteristic is the thing that provides drama in a, in a script um, where you do have to be in, in conflict about something to a certain extent, not so much with comedy. But, um, yeah, especially all those early women, you know, in their late 20s, 30s is a time, a big sort of time of change and decision-making, I guess. Whereas um, definitely salvation, the silly bitch, and that doesn't isn't reflecting much on anything, or you know, <laughs> she just thinks she knows everything because she is in love with God or something. So, yeah, those younger ones were definitely um, questioning more. I think. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for coming along. But thank you very much. I was terrified at some point that there just might be um, two men and a dog in the front row there. So <laughs> thank you all so very much for coming and thank you again to ACME. And thanks to Lex and Wendy and Jill. Yeah, thanks Lex, thanks Jill. Mwah.